I think you'll believe me. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4. So, uh, as you often know, in my esoteric, weird uh, sermon prep, I sometimes go to, to odd places, and, and this week had me Googling the greatest bluffs in poker history, and I read this top 10 list. I don't even really know a lot about poker, but I read this top 10 list of the greatest bluffs in poker history, and it, the idea is, is that all of these bluffs won more than a million dollars and that, uh, and that the people who were bluffed should have known better because they were professional poker players. I wasn't satisfied with that level of research, so I went ahead and you know, chartered a private jet out to Vegas and uh, spent my retirement savings on one hand. <laughs> uh, uh, the idea of bluffing is really important in this passage. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 Verse 15 says that God's sovereign work has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that means in poker terms that all the enemy has is a 0% chance of having a winning hand, right? The enemy has a 0% chance of holding a winning hand. And that means that all the enemy actually has is a bluff. That's relevant to our text because Acts 4 uses two words sort of uh, uh, almost in a kind of combatant way. The word threat appears twice in verse 21 and 28. And then the word boldness, which is the response to that threat, appears in verses 13, 29, and 31. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How to respond to the threats, which are themselves bluffs, and I'll explain that more in a moment, how to respond to the threats of the enemy with the boldness of God. Um, The church is really supposed to be good at this. In fact, the church has been, at times, very good at this. If the church wasn't good at responding to the enemy's bluffs, the the book of Acts would be called, like, the book of cowering. You know, like... (laughs) Like, it would be a completely different history if the church wasn't more or less good at seeing through the bluffs of the enemy. But, from time to time, we do struggle to see that all of the threats, all of the threatenings, are boundless. They have no basis. They have no power. So what I think we'll do this morning as we work our way through this passage is, We'll try to understand the nature of the bluff. We'll try to understand the power of the bluff. Like, why does it work on us when it does? We'll try to understand the diversity of the bluffs that are out there. And then we'll, we'll, we'll think through most uh, extensively on how to respond to these bluffs with the appropriate level of boldness. So first of all, the nature of the bluff. Uh, God alone has the authority to threaten. God alone has the authority to threaten. Christians aren't to threaten. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul instructs Christian employers not to threaten their workers. So Jesus himself even, in 1 Peter 2.23, Peter says that Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, so threats are really God's deal. He alone has the authority to issue them. And so when we see somebody issuing threats, we need to ask, well, by what power do you uh, issue this threat? One of the reasons why threats are really only God's deal is because in order to make a threat, you have to have authority over the future. Right? So the authority of a threat depends on the authority of your authority over the future. If you don't have power over the future, you don't really have the ability to make a threat. So, so the nature of threats depend in some way of saying, I want you to change your behavior now or else I'll do something to you in the future. And of course, that would require you to have some you know, ability or power or authority in the future, which none of us do except for God alone. So that's the nature of the bluff, uh, the diversity of the bluff. You know, there are just a lot of different ways that we feel threatened. And sometimes the enemy will use persecutors like we see in Acts 4. And those persecutions are very explicit. But a lot of times, you know, you don't need to make them explicit because they're just sort of built in. They're just sort of baked into life. You know, all of us uh, are going to have to figure out what we do with the threat of failure. You know, there's this, this question of uh, how, how ambitious will I be for the Lord? How, how, how much will I go? How far will I stretch myself? How far outside my comfort zone? What will I try? And so forth. And, and looming over all of those questions is the threat of failure, a threat that some of us take very seriously, and it paralyzes us, and it keeps us from, from taking those bigger steps. Of course, there is the threat of persecution, and that's simply, uh, if you don't do what I want you to do, which is usually stop talking about Jesus, I'll make your future miserable. There's the threat of poverty, and that's going to come up later in Acts 4, because uh, some people are exceedingly generous toward their brothers and sisters in the end of Acts 4. And, of course, what's built into that act of generosity? What did they have to think through before they did this generous thing? Well, they had to overcome the, the threat of poverty, right? The threat of if you give too much away, there won't be any for you. And then, of course, there's just the threat of shame that uh, we, we all feel. And that's just the idea that you don't deserve to be used by God. Um, if you step out into obedience, you will be put to shame and so on and so forth. So there's all sorts of different ways that threats come to us. And, and some of those are internal and some of them are external and some of them are explicit and some of them are implicit. It's really just, uh, just a whole gambit of, of different kinds of threats. Let's talk about why they have power. Let's talk about the power of the bluff. Why do bluffs work? Why do they work so often? Well, because they ply on some, some, some stuff that we've got going on inside through indwelling sin. Um, firstly, we were made to love health and wealth and safety and comfort. And by the way, that's a feature and not a flaw. Uh, the flaw comes in when we choose those things over the creator when we choose the creation over the creator. So one of the ways that threats work, the reason why threats have any power over us, is if they threaten to take away the stuff we like and the stuff we enjoy and the stuff we hope in, well, then they've got some leverage. The second way that threats work is, is that they, they, nat they leverage our natural sin tendency to worry about tomorrow. Uh, it's remarkable how few Christians understand how common, pervasive, and really life-altering this particular sin is, the sin of worrying about tomorrow. It's far more common than you might think, and 
I think it's also far more dangerous than you perhaps realize. We're all just kind of baked in with this indwelling sin feature of tendency to worry about tomorrow. And of course, threats really uh, apply against that because uh, the threat is all about tomorrow and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And maybe this person who's threatening us does and so on and so forth. Another reason why they work, it seems, is that we just have a natural tendency to doubt God's sovereignty. Right? We just have a natural uh, difficulty in trusting God's control and authority over all things and his loving inclination toward those who are in Christ. So the bluffs work because we have some, some sin that is just kind of dogging and dogging and dogging and just part of our, our indwelling sin. Uh, part of our flesh. So how do you respond to this? Well, that's where our text really comes in because it's a, it's a perfect example of responding so positively and biblically to the threats that were issued. Just to remind you of what's going on in this passage, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had healed a man who was lame since birth. Uh, that draws quite a crowd. People are astonished. This guy's actually leaping around, I think, is what it says in Acts 3. And uh, people are really, really engaged in this idea that this guy who had been lame since birth has now been healed. So they're gathered around, and Peter says the perfect thing early on in Acts 3. He says, hey, just so don't you think that this man has been healed by my power or my piety. And then he pivots from that statement of truth and humble truth as it is. He pivots from that and says, uh, I want to tell you about Jesus, the one who made this man well. So, Jesus, or so Peter is preaching Jesus to this assembled crowd. He's in the temple area. And uh, a group of uh, religious leaders, Sadducees, etc., the Sanhedrin, they're all uh, observing Peter deliver this message about the gospel, about the resurrection in particular, to these people. And it irks them. What was the word earlier in the passage? Do you remember from last week? This, this annoyed, right? It greatly annoyed them. And so uh, that's where we are. They, they do what they can do because of their great annoyance, and that is they arrest Peter and John. They question them, and they say, you must stop preaching this gospel. And Peter and John respond and say, you know, you've got to decide whether it's better for you, but we cannot stop uh, speaking uh, what we've seen, tell, talking about what we've seen and heard. Uh, we're going to obey God rather than man. They threaten them again, and release them. And that's sort of where we are. Uh, we see in the, early in that section of the text where uh, they come back to their friends and it says that when they heard, they report what happened, and it says when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So now we're going to talk about ways of responding to the bluff with boldness. And the first one is to overcome the scatter reflex with corporate prayer. Overcome the scatter reflex with corporate prayer. Just prior to his arrest, Jesus tells the disciples that when he is arrested, they, the disciples, will all scatter. And sure enough, when the shepherd Jesus was struck, the sheep scatter. Now this time in Acts 4, the shepherds have been struck. Peter and John have been struck. And the sheep do not scatter. Why? Well, spiritually and theologically, Jesus is the great shepherd, and you can't strike him anymore, right? Like, he's, he's got his sheep. He's holding them and so forth. 
But I think tactically, I would be remiss if I did not point out that there is a natural scattering tendency for saints when they see one of their own oppressed, stricken, knocked down, attacked. And that's just something that sheep do. When something looks scary, they run. And so we have this natural tendency to scatter when we're being struck down. And what do we do to overcome that? Well, I think what they did is just exactly what they should have done. They prayed. They gathered together and they lifted their voices up to the Lord together. So corporate prayer is essential to combat the scatter reflex. And let me tell you something about marriage as it relates to this very issue. The harder your marriage, the harder the season of life you're in, whether that's more stress or opposition or financial difficulties or whatever, the more likely you are to either turn against each other or at least turn away from each other. There's a scattering instinct that takes place within marriage when things get difficult. And the way you combat that, the way, I mean, I'm just going to be super practical, is you get in bed at the same time, you don't look at your phones, and you pray. Okay, so there you go. And then... And then maybe you, you keep your phones off for a little while longer, hint, hint. But you, you've got to stay together. And prayer seems to be this glue in the practice of the church and in the practice of Christian relationships that bonds people together. So how do we respond to the bluff with boldness? Well, one of the things is like, we just got to pray together. And the higher the temperature turns up of cultural opposition to the gospel, the more antagonism there is toward biblical truth, the more essential it will be that we are intentional in sticking together. And one of the big ways that we stick together is prayer. Uh, number two, the second way I think we see in this text is separate the weeds from the oaks. Separate the weeds from the oaks. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So I love that their response to current events was to call to memory a psalm that had been written 1,000 years prior. There's a really interesting thing happening here, and this is crucial to responding to the hostility of the day. Stop spending so much time in the weed patch and go spend more time in the oak grove. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a, there's a statistician, a pretty funny guy named Nassim Taleb, and, and he says this. He says, to be completely cured of newspapers, spend a year reading the previous week's newspapers. What does he mean by that? He means that if you gave your news a week, most of it wouldn't be relevant, important, which means that it never was. He's saying that people are too plugged in to the immediate and not plugged in enough to the ancient. One of the great increasers 
of anxiety and stress as you're sorting through cultural uh, persecution, cultural antagonism to the gospel is like you just need to stop paying so much attention to the headlines and go back to the old ways. You know, the incredible thing about a Christian is that they are plugged into this eternal, ancient, ancient and eternal kingdom that is simply in a league of its own. And so what these Christians are doing is they're responding to these weeds called the Sadducees, these weeds called the Sanhedrin, these men who will come and go like a vapor. They're responding to that by calling back to memory and prayer eternal and ancient things. They call out to the God who created the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They go way back. They call back a thousand years to their father, David, and quote Psalm 2. In many ways, what they're doing here is reminding themselves that whoever stands against them is by definition chaff. Is by definition chaff. Listen to Psalm 1, verse 3 through 4. Uh, It says that a righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water, right? That yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. So that's God's people. And then it says the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that all the wind drives away. So in this moment where everything that's threatening them is here and now, and these, these mortal individuals are bringing their threats about tomorrow, these people take a deep dive into the ancient oak grove and say, uh, we serve something and are part of something far, far, far more resilient than what you have to offer. Number three, behold the sovereign of the sovereigns. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I said earlier that the real trick of the enemy's bluff is to present themselves as having more power than they actually have. And remember, that only works because we're naturally inclined to worry about tomorrow and we're naturally inclined to struggle with the sovereignty of God. So what we need to do What we need to do when the times are threatening is we need to call upon the king of the kings and the sovereign of the sovereigns. Uh, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So this is what they're praying. They're saying that there were these guys, these dudes named Herod and Pilate, who were feared by everyone. Uh, that served under them. And and there are these guys, and, and they had their political uh, calculations, right? They, they, they had their conspiracies. They had their reasons for treating Jesus the way they did. But listen again to what they say. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Why were they gathered there? Were they gathered there to fulfill their own political agendas? Were they gathered there to accomplish their diabolical schemes? No, 
It turns out, verse 28, they were gathered there to do whatever God's hand had predestined them, whatever God's hand and plan had predestined them to do. God is holding all of these sovereigns in his sovereign hand, and he is turning them how he chooses to accomplish his will. So when your enemy is threatening, understand that your enemy has no power to threaten because your enemy can't do a peep about tomorrow. And your enemy, in fact, is accomplishing God's purposes for you in Christ Jesus. He holds them in his hand and they do what he wants them to do. Number four, you need to remember that your sovereign is the one you serve. Your sovereign is the one you serve. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, the word that you're going to most likely overlook is the word servant. But if you're not God's servant, then his sovereignty isn't for you. In fact, if you're not God's servant, you don't even believe that God's sovereign. So we could be here for decades talking about the sovereignty of God. But unless we're practically serving him as the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings and over all things, unless we're obeying him, we don't actually believe that he's sovereign. And so you're attempting in that case to comfort yourself with things you don't believe. Right? Uh, If you're not serving him, he isn't your sovereign. So uh, all of his sovereign promises, all of the rest you might have by leaning into This gracious, loving, all-powerful God. Well, you don't actually believe that's true because because there's a part of you that's saying, I I can serve myself. So it's sort of like like you're leaning into someone who, uh, who has, of course, the power to care for you and watch over you in your moment of distress. But do you guys even know each other? And did you listen to him last week when things were good? So remember that you can have an intellectual category for the sovereignty of God, but also have a practical demonstration that you don't actually believe that he's really in charge. Because if you did, you'd be serving him. There's an important piece to this, and it's not simply a a guilt, kind of a, a block of guilt to throw on your shoulder. It's simply that I want you to really believe that God is sovereign. And there's a part of you that, that the only way that you will believe that is if you start following him and start obeying him. Uh, there, there's parts of you that are not so easily fooled with head knowledge. There are deep gut level things going on in all of us. And those gut level things are looking at what you do, not simply what you think. Okay, number five. Remember, Jesus is actually working with you. Look at verse 30. In their prayer, it continues, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. One of the constant themes of uh, the last few chapters is that we are seeing Jesus himself at work in seeking and saving the lost. And he's just using his buddies that he hung out with for a few years as the instruments in his hands. Jesus is the one who is healing Jesus is the one who is saving. Jesus is actually the one who is being sent by the Father to bring times of refreshing to those who repent. Jesus is the one who's doing the work, and he's simply using his friends, his brothers and his sisters, 
to accomplish that work as instruments. That's why, that's why Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission, that the, the sweetness of that isn't the mission, it isn't the purpose, it isn't the, uh, the connection so much to the, uh, to the, to the original creation mandate. It, it, there's also some really cool things going on there. But the thing is, is that the person who loves Jesus just wants to be, with where Je- be where Jesus is. And where Jesus is, is with us as we go into the world making disciples. So Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a sweet, sweet thing to think that as we go out into the world and make disciples, that Jesus is right there. And in their prayer in verse 30 of Acts 4, that's exactly what they're thinking. That's, that's how they feel about it. They're not just simply being theologically uh, adept. They're, they see this. They say, you stretch out your hand to heal and, and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're seeing God actively with them on mission. And number six, the final point. And this one is going to take a moment for you to write down, so I'll give you, I'll give you extra time. Keep praying together until that which shakes you is only that which should shake you. Keep praying together until that which shakes you is only that which should shake you. The, the whole idea of the bluff, the whole idea of the threat in Acts 4, is to shake up the people of God and to keep them from doing what they've been called to do. That's what a threat is for. A threat is to get you to shake in your boots, right? Well, what's the cure? What's the ultimate cure for fear? Well, you know, it's the fear of God, right? It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the love of God where you say, okay, you, God, you, God, matter most of all. So what I'm saying here is, is that there are things that should shake you and there are things that should not shake you. The things that should not shake you can only be quieted if you allow the things that should shake you to shake you. Man, shake start to sound really weird. The only way to become unafraid of the things that you're afraid of is to become afraid of the things that you should be afraid of. So you keep praying until the things that should shake you do and the things that shouldn't shake you don't. And where am I getting that? Well, in verse 31, so, so God essentially responds with the threat of, uh, with the threat of evil violence God, how does God respond to that? Well, he responds violently. <laughs> but it's a sweet, kind, fatherly, shake your house kind of thing. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I think this antidote for fear is this massive kind of rough hug embrace from the father and you say oh wait a minute wait a minute you're the one that's the strong one you're the one that holds tomorrow 
and you're the only one that holds tomorrow. Anyone else who's threatening me is pretending to hold tomorrow. You, Lord, hold tomorrow. So to conclude, I want to confess a dark moment in my, my life with my wife recently. We have fallen into the trap of watching court procedural dramas while she crochets scarves next to me. It's like really official that we're old. One episode a night, I watch my court drama. (laughs) She adds another line to the scarf. Well, these are not shows that I would have ever watched before I decided to get old, and so I'm kind of new and sensitive to them. And one of the things that uh, always happens in these shows is that when someone uh, commits a crime or when someone's suspected of committing a crime, the police always talk about motive, means, and opportunity, right? Did this person do it? Did that person do it? Did he have the motive? Did he have the means? Did he have the opportunity? Uh, Over and over again, that gets asked. Well, our enemies actually have none of those if God doesn't want them to have them. This is crazy. You understand, of course, that unless the Lord gives them the means, they do not have it. Right? You also understand um, that uh, that unless the, the Lord gives them uh, the opportunity, they will not have it. So if, if God wants them to have the opportunity, they'll have it. If God doesn't, they won't. If God wants them to have the means, they will. If God doesn't, they won't. But you've got to remember that it goes all the way to motive two and that God has this crazy history of not only keeping his people safe from, his, from their enemies, but converting the enemies. So Paul is, uh, when you, when, if you were to search threat in the Bible, one of the places it would pop up is, is when Saul, uh, later to be the Apostle Paul, is breathing murderous threats on the church. He had the motive, he had the means, he had the opportunity, until he didn't. And God just saved him. And took away everything. Listen, friends. Your enemy is not safe from the grace of God but you are safe from your enemy. God will take care of you. Sometimes that means suffering. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it means deep hardship. Sometimes it means persecution. Sometimes it means that the martyr's blood is spilled. That is all according to the hand of God who holds the kings in his hand and turns their hearts as he will. But the thing to remember is, is that we're not the ones playing defense. Our enemies are actually not safe from the God of the universe who reaches down and saves their dark, hateful hearts just like he did ours. We're not the ones who need to be afraid. They're the ones who need to be afraid because God has this rude habit of reaching in and changing his enemies into his friends. Isn't that incredible? Does he have the motive and the means and the opportunity? I mean, he, he does right now. He might not tomorrow. He might be on his way to Damascus tomorrow and have none of those things anymore. That's because God holds the future. So God alone has the authority 
to make threats and promises. Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise your holy name for your sovereign care and goodness. You alone hold tomorrow. God, help us, help us, please, Lord, uh, to see all of the other things which threaten to be as hollow and empty as they are. God, trusting you is not a gamble. You hold all the cards. Whatever comes against us, whatever threatens, um, it's just a bluff. You are really, actually, fully, completely, totally in charge and really, actually, completely, totally for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for particular people who are just, uh, they're just seeing something as very threatening and looming large. And I, got, I ask God that you would just give them this peace that shakes them, this, this peace that creates certainty in their heart about your goodness and your faithfulness and your sovereign care. Lord, I also just pray for those who are antagonistic to the gospel. We could have people listening online uh, to this sermon who maybe have that, uh, that stance. They're, they're investigating, but they're also kind of antagonistic. God, I just pray for those who don't know Christ. The root of our hope is that you loved us so much that you gave yourself up for us and offered your righteousness as atoning payment for our wickedness. So we pray for those who don't know you and because they don't know you have zero connection to this ancient family tree that we have to the to the eternal God that we can look back on and say, you created all things, God. You've got this. They don't have these deep connections. They don't, they don't have hope that goes on forever and ever and ever uninterrupted. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring the truth of the gospel to them, God, and that you would save them and adopt them into your family. And that, God, they would be able to say, along with us and along with the Apostle Paul, that, This is for certain. I, I really am the chief of sinners, but God saved me. So that by saving me, he might display his unending mercy, his perfect mercy. Thank you, God, for your sovereign, loving care over your people. We confess that you are over and above all things, all things that we know about, all things that we don't. We confess that you are the God who stands over time who possesses perfect knowledge, perfect power, perfect wisdom, perfect goodness. Lord, you are our God. Praise your holy name. It's in that name we pray. Amen.